All of these pills that we give force the eyes closed, but prevent that person from getting into REM. And so if they can't get into REM, the brain cannot clean itself. So we're creating this neurological constipation for people and they wake up each day and they cannot function because they're so full. <laughs> they just can't release and, we, and we're damaging their, their brains over time. Welcome to the Chai Chat Podcast, solutions for empowered living, engaging, educating, empowering. Each week, your host, Tarun Puri, author of Finding the Guru Within, and Steve Harvey, mindset mentor to A-list celebrities and stars, bring a combined expertise of over six decades in mentoring, coaching, and inspiring positive solutions to the negatives which keep us stuck and unhappy. With a focus on solutions versus problems, in each episode, they discuss topics relevant to the human condition, which challenge us from moving forward into positive growth and ultimate freedom. Through stream-of-consciousness unscripted dialogue and inquiry, they provide practical, deep, and actionable insights to support you in creating and living a happy, successful, fulfilled life. Join us each week and learn how to access your own inner GPS, your guru positioning system, which comes preset with all the solutions you need for empowered living. Living a life of ease versus effort is only a thought away. Let us show you what works and what doesn't. Hello and welcome to Chai Chat. I am Tarun Puri. And I'm Steve Harvey. And today we bring you a most wonderful topic. It's called Rest in Peace, How to Take Back Your Sleep. What do you think of that, Steve? I think it's a, a great topic for discussion. And, you know, I think that sleep, it's a lot like love. Everyone agrees that, you know, love is wonderful except when it's not. And Everyone agrees that sleep is wonderful, except when it's not, you know, and when you think about it, human beings, we spend close to one third of our life asleep, mm -hmm. you know, and when we go without sleep, you know, I think it can make you psychotic, uh, could eventually kill you, you know, indirectly or, or directly. Um, and so I think uh, it's clear that getting some good quality shut eye is crucial to the body's ability uh, to function and to be successful in all areas of life. Uh, you know, I, I can't agree more. And, and just from a layman's perspective, as I've worked with clients and family and friends and just myself, I've had the observation that over the years, as our world is speeding up more and more, that somehow sleep is a dirty word. It's almost like if you're sleeping or want to sleep more, that somehow you're being a lazy bum and that somehow you're not taking, you know, your career goals uh, seriously or that you're avoiding. So, you know, I thought, well, instead of having these theories, why don't we just call in the expert? And I am absolutely delighted today that we were able to have Julia Worrell, RN, who has tucked in thousands of people over her extensive career in nursing. And of course, along with that medical training that you get, she also specialized in respiratory health. And those two together, combined with a few interesting experiences, developed into an expertise that she brings to us today in the area of sleep. So as a specialist uh, in how overall health and well-being and sleep are intimately interconnected, she has consulted worldwide with individuals, with organizations, and all those who are seeking solutions to health and sleep issues. Uh, you know, Julia has, I think, effectively connected the dots between previously presumed unrelated health and dental issues even, can you believe it? With issues with sleep. I am so looking forward to learning how my dental issues are impacting my sleep and how my sleep is impacting my dental. And along with that, in her spare time, she is the chief editor of the Best Sleep Magazine. I'm subscribing. And we're delighted to have her on this uh, Chai Chat podcast today to share her passion, her understanding, and really to have her help you get the quality of sleep you deserve along with optimum health. So um, Julia, come on, come on in and enlighten us, um, uh, my friend, with sleep. Well, that was a fantastic introduction. Thank you. I'm <laughs> so happy to be here with you. Hi, Julia. Welcome. 
uh, yeah, we're all almost feeling like we should be calm and, you know, <laughs> we should be behaving in a way conducive to sleep. It's almost like we're going to get caught if we're too hyper. But, you know, in podcast land, we can't have those pauses right now because it may put people to sleep because they need it so much. So so we will fill in we'll fill in the space here. But hopefully at the end of this discussion, I'm really hoping that our listeners will will be able to have a more rounded, maybe a 360 view of what is sleep, what isn't sleep, what do we know and not know about it? And and we had this discussion off camera, who owns sleep? I, I've never asked that question. So when we talked about that, and you know, with my legal background, immediately I think of patents and copyrights, and I hear the word of who owns sleeps in terms of that, but I'll be quiet and Oh, can we jump off with that bit of question? And then we want to learn a little bit more about you. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great place to start because so many people, when they're starting to struggle with sleep, they think, okay, who do I go to? Who do I talk to about this problem? And there are so many people out there calling themselves sleep experts, right? Mm. So you have some organizations that are strongly mental health focused when it comes to sleep. So talking about what's preventing you, what thoughts are racing through your mind? What is, you know, what is the emotional state that's preventing you from getting into sleep? And those strategies are very effective for many people, but not all. Mm. And then you have the whole respiratory pathway, right? Are you snoring? Do you have sleep apnea? Do you have asthma? Or is there, are you able to breathe through your nose? And, and those strategies are effective for many people, but not all. And so then you think, well, exercise physiology, if you exercise and you move your body and you increase the flow of CSF, you're going to sleep better. So then people start to exercise and then still can't get to sleep at night. Um, there's there's so many variables. What are you eating? Are you having too many things that are congesting you? And, you know, are you food sensitivities that are preventing you from sleeping? Everybody has a piece of the puzzle. But for the person who is still struggling to sleep, it can be very frustrating to know, where do I start? And, and I've come to this um, belief that it's because we are looking at sleep the way we've done with the rest of the body. We have taken the body and divided it, right? Yeah. Into different specialties and sections. So if I have palpitations, I'm gonna go to a cardiologist, right? But what happens if the cardiologist does an echo and ECG says your heart's fine? And you go on and you still have palpitations. Mm -hmm. Well, then you kind of feel like you're losing your mind because you've been told it's fine, but you don't feel fine. And there's a part of you that tells you there's something that's not quite right. And so that's where I think people are really struggling. And we, then we fall into the trap of what providers are used to doing, which is giving a medication and saying, you know what, you can't sleep. Let me give you a medication that's going to shut your eyes for you. So I'm going to make your eyes shut for eight hours and you will wake up and you will think that you have effectively slept, but yet you still feel exhausted. So did you sleep? Because people think that just by closing their eyes for a period of time, that they are achieving sleep because they're not understanding the physiology of sleep, right? So it's like, if I put food in front of you on the plate, on the table, that doesn't mean that you digested the food and it doesn't mean that you can eliminate that. So just because somebody's eyes are closed does not mean that they are effectively and actually sleeping. And I know that because as a nurse, I have used many chemicals to put people into various states of sleep or uh, unconsciousness. And I know that we can manipulate that, right? So <clears throat> that's what a lot of these drugs are doing. And so people are still not feeling like they've enjoyed a satisfying pleasurable night's sleep. And that's where the desperation comes for a lot of people. Uh, we need to look at sleep as a sleep-wake cycle. So you can't talk about sleep if you're not addressing the wake, the oh. sleep-wake cycle. And then even during sleep, there are sleep-wake cycles within your sleep. There's the, mm -hmm. the deep sleep and then the REM is a wakeful part. So are you right. getting both? So there's a lot, there's a lot that goes on to, with sleep, not to overcomplicate it for people. Once you get the rhythm of what's happening, then you can work in harmony with the rhythm and flow of your body to be able to enjoy optimal sleep. Wow, that is so fascinating to 
kind of pull back the lens, if you will, and see the forest for the trees is what I'm hearing here. And uh, I'm just so curious, though, that I know that, uh, like we were talking in your introduction, that uh, so you're you have the RN background. Uh, you literally told us you had tucked in thousands of people and in order to give them a good, comfortable sleep. So obviously, who's more qualified? And that really made me think. I said, oh, my gosh, that's that's amazing. And then on top of that, the, the interest in respiratory functions. But was there a, a specific incident or was it over time that, that kind of tweaked you or brought you more laser focused into the actual mechanism of sleep? Yeah, I think um, I spent my career in critical care. So I was really proud, you know, of the knowledge that I've accumulated to be able to help save people's lives. And you get the sickest of the sick and you're tweaking little things here and there to it's really a privilege to be able to help somebody come back from the, the brink, you know, but personally, and, and my colleagues, we from working night shifts, from having that heavy responsibility, from working 12 hour shifts, from having children we went home to and then had to do that, we were burning out mm. and exhausted. And, and it was a culture, like we would start our shift and it's even more so now, we'd start our shift saying, you know, oh, I only got two hours of sleep last night. Oh, well, you're lucky you got two. I only got one. Like we'd all be comparing how little sleep that we got. Um, <laughs> and, it, and for somebody to come in and say, I had a great sleep. I slept 10 hours. Oh. Man, you just were like shooting daggers at them, right? Like <laughs> you, you call yourself a nurse. And, you know. <laughs> how weak, how weak that you need all that sleep, right? <laughs> but um, but over time, what you start to see is it takes its toll. And I was really struggling with a combination of huge fatigue, uh, which whenever I went and complained to the doctor about fatigue, they said you must be depressed. And oh. I didn't consciously feel depressed. But that's what they, they say, your blood works fine, therefore you must be depressed. Go talk to somebody. So I, could, I just knew that wasn't kind of the thing for me. And I also struggled with migraines, terrible migraines through the years that were getting more and more on, you know, uh, intractable. And so um, I started doing some research and my doctor had said, why don't you go get a sleep test? And when I went, I put off getting that sleep test, I'm going to tell you, because in my mind, the media and, and how sleep apnea is presented is that it's older, middle-aged men, slightly overweight, truck drivers. I had an image in my mind of what mm. sleep apnea looked like. And so when he told me that, what I heard was, he thinks you're overweight, you know, you should be losing weight. You, like I, I heard it as a negative thing. And, and that was my tired brain, by the way, receiving that message in that place, right? So I put off getting that sleep test for 10 years. What? And I've come to find oh. out that's not unusual. Okay, out of 10 times the doctor will order a sleep test, four only will go and get it. That's mind blowing. I okay. mean, people religiously do physicals. But like, no, because, okay. <laughs> because there's a story that we tell ourselves, right? Okay. No, I'm overwhelmed. My husband doesn't help me enough at home. My kids don't help me. I, you know, I, I, I know I should be going to the gym and I'm not. If I did, I'd have more energy. So you tell yourself this whole story of why you deserve to be tired and, and why you deserve to be suffering. Okay. So it took me until I started reading about cardiovascular issues. I started having palpitations. I started, I was diagnosed with an irregular heart rhythm. And I, when I started looking into the correlation between heart disease and sleep apnea, I thought maybe I should go get it checked out, right? So I go for my test. I can't even stay awake long enough for them to, you know, I said, I have to go to sleep right now. I'm exhausted. Bam, I go to sleep. I wake up in the morning and I think I've had the best sleep of my life. Like normally I have kids coming in, waking me up all night, right? Like this was going like going to a resort, best sleep ever. So then the doctor comes in to discuss the results with me. And it turns out when they subtracted the amount of times that my brain was awake that I didn't even realize. Okay. He said, your heart through the night was like, you were running up and down the stairs, running up, 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 bam, it would come down, up, 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 come down. And you would stop breathing for sometimes up to almost two minutes. 
you would stop breathing, your oxygen would come down. So all of those, what we call arousals, flood your body with adrenaline, cortisol, stress hormones, make you insulin resistant, make it impossible for you to lose weight and put you in fight or flight all night. So your blood pressure starts to go up and there is no possible way that you can be healthy with all the choices you're making during the daytime. If every time you go to sleep at night, you, this is this process is sabotaging you, all your efforts. So when they subtracted all those out, it turned out that in seven hours, I only actually slept 20 minutes. What? 20 minutes. I mean, I'm not a betting man, but if we all had a competition and we all said, okay, whoever gets closest or, you know, wins a prize or something, I would have never said 20 minutes. Like, that's just shocking. But, but Tarun, <laughs> uh, I was only diagnosed with moderate sleep apnea. Do you know how many people are way worse than that? And when your oxygen starts to drop because you stop breathing and you get below 90%, you start to lose brain cells, right? You have tissue death. So okay. your cells start to die. They're your telomeres, which predict how long you will live. They shorten, right? And there are people who, if we were observing that during the daytime in a hospital setting, we would intubate them. But it's happening in the privacy of your own home with your spouse beside you who keeps elbowing you to wake up, roll over, turn over, something like that. And it, it happens to people all the time. And they are resistant to follow through on that because of whatever their perception is about, I don't want to wear the machine. I don't think I have a problem if my wife would just stop nagging me about snoring or the spouse will go into a different room as if that solves the problem. But meanwhile, this alarm system, this beautiful alarm system that your body created with the snore getting louder and louder and louder to let people know around you, I'm struggling. I can't breathe. Help me. Instead, we get irritated and we shut them out into an area all by themselves. And working in the emergency department, I can't tell you how many times those calls we get between midnight and six o'clock in the morning your heart sinks because you know it's going to be bad. And it's the wife went in because the husband was actually quiet and finds him him gone. You know, mm -hmm. that that's a nightmare when it could have been something as simple as getting a test, putting some air and helping you to breathe or correcting the oral facial complex that is causing the problem in the first place. People don't know that there are fairly simple solutions out there for them. That's mind blowing. I've never thought of snoring as actually a an alarm system calling for help like like if your smoke alarm started to go off in the evening or night you'd be up and trying to figure out what's happening and where is it coming from right mm -hmm. not taking it and throwing it into the closet and hoping it right like so that is wow i've just learned so much already here hey steve so julia i i have a background in in uh my first career was in dental technology. So I'm, I'm really interested to hear, speak a little bit about, you know, the, the structure of the, the facial structure mm -hmm. and, uh, and the role of how it affects breathing and the quality of sleep. And, you know, is there some, something that, you know, we can, people can look at themselves and say, based on the structure of my face, I may be more susceptible to having sleep problems Therefore, I can be proactive and do something about it before the problem shows up. Absolutely. 100%. In fact, most of the times when I'm lecturing or teaching a course, I tell the participants to bring a mirror with them. Bring a mirror or get your cell phone out. And we're going to do a self-evaluation because there are simple things we can see. Something, for example, of you would know a class two presentation. So where your jaw... Yeah is actually back. It's back yeah. too far. You know, so you might see people have, we used to call it buck teeth, you yeah. know, or an overjet where your teeth kind of come more forward on top than they do on the bottom. As that jaw comes back, you have to think about the structures that are attached to that jaw, which is your huge yeah. tongue. People are yeah. really surprised to see how big the tongue is. More than just this part you see in the front, it's the big, huge muscle that goes down the back of your throat. So as that jaw comes back, it's compressing against the back of your throat. And the reason why I had so many issues that I had 
was because I was a class three, which meant my jaw came forward. And back oh. in the day, they thought the solution was to push that jaw back. So I had surgery. They broke my jaw. They pushed it back. And when they did that, they pushed my tongue right up against the back of my throat. So unless I want to have surgery to bring all of that forward again, I'll probably wear a CPAP for the rest of my life because they removed bone, right? But if you're somebody who's in that in-between place, there are so many things they can do now with what they call functional appliances, palatal mm -hmm. expanders to open up, to make space for the tongue, not just to fit in your mouth, but it should fit up into the roof of your mouth. And that's the other issue a lot of people have is their tongue sits low, the muscle gets floppy for many reasons. Uh, it could be that you were um, bottle fed instead of breastfed. You used a pacifier for longer than you should have. Maybe you used a sippy cup for a long time. You sucked your thumb, right? All of those things change the way you use your muscles. So you're using muscles in the front of your face instead of in the back of your throat, which actually would help to strengthen tone. And that tongue motion of um, breastfeeding or actually just an effective swallow actually is what helps to guide the growth of your face moving forward. And when that tongue sits low and doesn't do its job, then what you see is uh, what we call retreated um, uh, maxilla because the, this part of your face doesn't grow forward enough. And when that happens, then you also end up with smaller sinuses, a deviated septum, stuffy nose all the time. You can't breathe through your nose. And the more you can't breathe through your nose, the more you breathe through your mouth, the more your tongue posture changes, and the worse it gets over time. So That's me. Yeah. That's and, me. and how <laughs> how it becomes manifest is you start to see the kids' teeth are all coming in crooked and crowded and compressed. And so a well-meaning orthodontist will come along and say, let me make your child's face look pretty. I'll pull out these teeth. I'll yeah, throw on some um, bicuspids. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and we'll make the teeth look real pretty. But it's not about the teeth. It's yeah. not about the teeth. I had expansion done. And the expansion was great. I opened up and made space. I could feel myself breathing better. I had more room for my tongue. And the beautiful dentist... <laughs> Wanted to make sure my teeth looked beautiful at the end of it. So wanted to put braces on. But the minute they put the braces on and the elastics and all those things, I couldn't tolerate it. And I was like, listen, I don't care about the teeth looking straight. I want room for my tongue. I want good cranial motion. I want all the bones in my skull to be moving effectively, clearing fluid. So I don't care if I have a space or two here or there. But we've gone so much into this idealized beauty that we fixate on the teeth and these parents are paying and signing over their children to a lifetime of chronic pain, weight struggles, mental and emotional issues because they just want their teeth to look pretty. So that's where we have a lot of work to kind of change people's mindset about what is beauty because health, when, you, when somebody is healthy, then they radiate beauty. When you try to force it, you actually change the genetic potential of that person yeah. and it never quite looks the same as nature would have intended it to look right mm -hmm. yeah that is mind-blowing again you have tied together so many areas truly when you're talking about optimum health and well-being and dental i mean you i couldn't have imagined that there were that many subtleties involved um, uh, that contribute to this whole mechanism right, that we call, and, and I just thought sleep was about, you know, what the easy way is, right, Julia? What, why, why all this complication? Why don't we just pop a pill? Right, pill like, for every like, ill. Yeah. right? <laughs> but you know, um, so the number one thing I have people reaching out for me to help them with is to get off the pills. Okay. That's the hardest thing. And think about the pills that we're giving. We're giving um, sedatives, benzodiazepines, which are amnesiacs, which mean we use those in procedures where we're going to create pain and we don't want you to remember. We're going to do something very uncomfortable and we don't want you to remember. So we'll give you something that actually well, disassociates that memory in your mind, right? So then we wonder why there's all sorts of people that are having memory issues and dementia, but they've been on these pills for a lifetime to try to sleep. Uh, or we give a hypnotic or we give an antipsychotic. And all of these pills that we give 
force the eyes closed, but prevent that person from getting into REM. And so if they can't get into REM, the brain cannot clean itself. So we're creating this neurological constipation for people and they wake up each day and they cannot function because they're so full. <laughs> they just can't release and we, and we're damaging their, their brains over time. I love wow. that neurological constipation. Uh, me too. I, I like you. You got to trademark that because it's uh, it, 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 because the visual is very compelling. And so basically, what you're telling me is people are getting knocked unconscious or knocked out. But really, rather than um, healing or receiving the rest, see, we tend to think. I've always thought, well, I'm sleeping, therefore I'm resting. But you're telling me not necessarily. So speak to that a bit. Like, so it's, it's called sleep architecture. Okay. Um, so think about if you go to the hospital for chest pain, they put these leads on you and then they, you get a little squiggle, right? The mm -hmm. PQRST. And, and we know what that should look like if it's healthy, normal sinus rhythm for each person. Now, if you come in and that QRS, that pointy part is wide. Oh, we're getting the crash cart. We're pulling it over. We get oxygen on because we know what that means and what that's going to do to you, the potential for your heart to stop, for example. Okay. Our whole body is like that. So when we look at sleep and we measure what's happening in the brain during sleep, we expect to see a very predictable model. So the first four hours of your night should be you going from stage one, just getting ready for sleep, you know, feeling kind of warm and fuzzy, right? Um, then stage two, where you start to lower your blood pressure, lower your heart rate, temperature starts to go down, you're kind of cutting off, you could kind of hear what's going on around you, but you really just don't care. Stage three, now all of a sudden you disengage, you're not going to hear what's going on. You're actually in a deeper state of sleep. You've got slow brain waves, more synchronized brain waves going through, okay? And in that deep part of sleep is where your body heals, muscles, tissue, growth hormone is released. That's where it goes about fixing your body from the day. And so you have multiple periods of that within the first four hours, about 90 minutes in, you'll get a little period of REM, but it's not much, okay? Not much. But the last four hours of your sleep, you get very little deep sleep, and now the body focuses its attention on healing your brain. So that's where you start to get the majority of your REM sleep. And what happens between the deep sleep and the REM is it's not a gradual descent into it, like stage one, two, three. It is a switch that occurs. It's, it's called the flip-flop switch in the neurology. So it either turns on and turns off or it doesn't. The sleeping pills people take prevent you from turning on, okay? And when you're in that deep sleep with the slow oscillating waves, the cells are actually filling up with fluids and neurological waste, etc. And then when you switch to REM, all of a sudden now the brain waves get very active. That's when you're dreaming and there's all this stuff going on in your brain, but your body is now paralyzed. And it's what we call the brain drain, because as the brain cells become activated, now all that fluid leaves the cells and is eliminated. So I do call this my neurodigestive theory, okay? That everything you've taken in through the day, the, the brain has to file away, consolidate the memory, or prune it and get rid of it so that you can start the next day fresh. And if you're not going through all these process, then you wake up in the morning, ugh, you know, dragging yourself out of bed, telling yourself, you know what, get up, you got to go to that meeting, but maybe you can have a nap later on. Like you just don't have the energy because you're carrying this leftover stuff this sludge in your brain that then we start talking about these conglomerates of tau proteins and amyloid plaques and all of these things that are stuck in our brain that become dementia down the road. There are studies that showed when they measured the markers in 12 and 13 year olds, they already saw the Alzheimer's markers in these children. 
that were sleeping very poorly. But when they treated the sleep and then they retested them, those markers were gone. So we, we know that 10, 20, 30 years before you ever have the signs of Alzheimer's and dementia, you're already causing and, and the damage is being created by that insomnia, the chronic insomnia, the shift work disorders, all of these things that are impacting your sleep. To me, I think we should be screaming a lot, getting a lot more attention for preventive than spending billions of dollars on a drug for a disease that nobody has been able to, to create a drug for. Let's be preventative and help people's brains to do the job that they're designed to do. And I know I got off of the topic of the question that you asked me on <laughs> my little tirade, but, yeah. but <laughs> that's the frustrating thing. And so the other part of this switch that occurs is that that switch is an, an acetyl, it requires acetylcholine for that switch to work. And the precursor for acetylcholine is vitamin D. So if we talk about vitamin D deficiencies and the effect that it has on our sleep, what we're really talking about is a sunshine deficiency because our body is dependent on the sun to set our circadian rhythms, right? To help us sleep. Uh, we need the sun to come in our eyes at a certain angle. So certain times of the year, we actually absorb more vitamin D than other times. We have photoreceptors on our skin where we metabolize vitamin D. But most of us, since the invention of the light bulb, have actually not worked in harmony with the rising and setting of the sun. We've actually gone indoors with artificial lighting and started a 24-hour work cycle where we're totally acting as if all of these things that existed and served us well for thousands and thousands of years, all of a sudden, we think we can change our physiology to make us more successful in business and and. You know, you know what I'm saying, right? Oh, yeah. You're talking to the entrepreneurs in the room here. I'm just saying, right, that somehow because I can I can light and see that way I can work longer and more and I don't have to go to sleep when all of nature sleeps. I mean, that's for, you know, the animals and birds and trees. And but I'm special, right? Like I have different laws and I can kind of fool with those is what I'm hearing here. So talk a little bit about that cycle. It's it's uh, everywhere. But. <laughs> But uh, the success that we feel we've achieved in these last hundred years has come at what cost? Hmm. Look around you at what cost? So to trace back, when did our sleeping issues start? You know, there's a lot of data that points to the invention of the light bulb as yeah. that, right? Yeah. So, so that has been huge. And then all the different light forms that we've had. So we then in, in our effort to be successful and achieve the American dream have felt like it's okay for us to steal away from our sleep time and use that time to be more productive, to make mm. more money, to prove that we're driven and that we deserve to have success. So you have people proudly exclaiming that they sleep four or five hours a night. Yeah. But remember, I just shared with you what happens first four hours, the last four hours. Yeah. So first four hours, you're going to have body repair. So physically, you will be able to get up and do but the last four hours is mental, emotional regulation, uh, our stability, our, our resiliency. So you'll be doing but you won't be being like you, you will be snapping at your loved ones, your relationships will decline. You yourself will become hardened, on edge, depressed, anxious. Like the sacrifice that we're making to lose those hours of sleep is too great in the big scheme of things on for our partners, our families, our society, and the world at large that we're seeing today. People, people think I don't, want, I don't want to get into political things, but people people think they have a belief about something and that's why they feel so strongly. But in many of these cases, they feel that strongly because they are missing out on a good chunk of their emotional regulation that's supposed to be happening here every night. Yeah, it sounds to me, Julia, you're talking about how you might have a background in Ayurveda and we talk about living life in balance with nature's rhythms. Um, and you also spoke about digestion you know, the, the neurodigestive uh, 
connection there. And Ayurveda talks about, you know, we are not, people say we are what we eat, but Ayurveda said we are what we digest. And digestion is really the ability to take in energy and information and eliminate that which you don't need, which you were referring to there. Uh, but also living in, in balance with nature's rhythms. And Tarun and I were discussing this last night about how we've gotten away from living in, in harmony with nature. You know, years ago, people were up and at work, you know, before six o'clock. Mm -hmm. They'd eat their large meal at lunchtime and they'd be in bed by 10 o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. But because of the invention of light bulbs, but also of the internet and the digital world, where people mm -hmm. are working in different time zones. And instead of being in bed at 10 o'clock at night, they're actually, that's a midday because they're having a, you know, if it's a, a broker, for example, that's doing trades from London and, and New York and Tokyo and whatever, and they have to be awake all these different hours. And so, yeah, maybe they're making, you know, lots of money in the process, but as you said, at what cost? At what, what cost? And yeah. And um, you brought up a good point about when we're talking about this whole neurodigestive concept, you've got to look at the gut. You produce all the neurotransmitters in your gut. So if you're not eliminating, you won't have the neurotransmitters that help you to get to sleep. One night's sleep, missing one night of sleep, destroys your microbiome in your gut. So you're already going to be at a disadvantage. Now, however, what you get from that one night without sleep is you get a surge of dopamine. So you'll find... There are people who are very creative, very intelligent. A lot of the inventors, a lot of these ones, they said they did their best work when they weren't sleeping. They had chronic insomnia, right? So they would be very creative. Some of these writers, they make their songs. and they, So yeah. one night of sleep, fine. But that surge of dopamine um, actually competes with melatonin receptors. They fight for the same receptors. So that excess dopamine now creates less receptors and suppresses melatonin. So what I found as a nurse is that when I switched to night shifts, the first night I came home, I was dragging. The second night, I felt a little bit better. Third night, I was like, all night long, you go have a nap, I'll cover your people. Like, you go, I'm good. And, and I went almost, by the fourth night, almost into a manic state. And then yep. I knew when I came off of those night shifts, I wouldn't be able to sleep for two weeks. Like, I just knew. You get into these cycles. So what people don't understand is that there are these neurochemical reactions that take place that you cannot talk yourself out of when you're in those states. I mean, we've had people come to the emergency department. They didn't sleep four or five days. They are psychotic. Yeah. We can't talk to them. Only thing you can do at that state is give them something to shut them down, make them sleep, and then try to work with them, right? But you have people who spend their entire lives in that low level chronic sleep insufficiency psychotic state and yet we say we applaud them for these driven type a personalities they're hard to deal with they're hard you know they're but they're being successful but inevitably the body can only tolerate that for so long and it will shut it down so you'll be successful and someone else will reap the benefits of your sacrifice 100 percent. yeah yeah, we so talk I'll, about that in in that manage energy, not your stress, right? That that's yeah. the same resonance here. Yeah, go ahead, Steve. So, so I'm going to say it almost seems it's become more important to talk about who you're sleeping with versus your quality of sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and now, did I tell you the rating of this program, Steve? It's, <laughs> it's called Clean. I'm just I'm just letting you guys know before you answer that, Julia. <laughs> well, you know. Um, Clearly, it's an issue because a lot of the new uh, constructions and homes are making double master suites. There's this whole concept of the yeah. sleep divorce, right? Yeah. So they recommend if you want to stay with your partner, you need to sleep in separate rooms. And so this, this division of rather than getting to the root of the problem. So we talk about the primary sleep disorder, which is whoever is not sleeping, right? The secondary or secondhand sleep disorder is the partner of that person. Yeah. Because yeah. let's say you have a husband who's snoring. He's going to end up with cardiovascular problems, right? The wife beside him, her brain, you know, we talk about everything shutting down and we're sleeping, but there's still always a part of your brain and your consciousness that is aware 
and is constantly scanning the room every 40 mm -hmm. seconds, right? So that person who's sleeping beside her loved one, the brain is noticing, hey, he stopped breathing, wakes her up. She wakes up, realizes, nudges him to roll over. Then she tries to settle back to sleep. So both of them are having these arousals, are having these surges of adrenaline and cortisol, but she will tend to get the depression, the insulin resistance, the diabetes, right? She will tend to get the metabolic changes. So now you have two people who are unhealthy. How do they interact with their children? So now we're talking about third hand sleep disorders because the byproduct of this are exhausted, unhealthy parents with very little reserves trying to manage children who likely have terrible sleep as well. You can notice when the mom is pregnant and you do an ultrasound, you can see at 12 weeks a difference in the flow of that child and already identify that they're going to have issues. And then when they're oh. born, huh. if we don't support that, some children are on CPAP or have breathing issues from day one, and we call it SIDS, right? So sleep apnea in children is SIDS. And what's interesting, side note, 92% of children who died of SIDS had lip ties, tongue ties, so restrictions, right? So you have these children that are growing up in an age where we don't respect sleep the same way. I can't tell you how many parents I say about their two or three-year-old, oh, they won't nap. They won't nap. Oh, they don't go to sleep. They stay up all night, right? That's a combination of... The child is exhausted, and when they are overtired, they respond by becoming hyper. Mm -hmm. They act out, they lose their mind. Normally, we would say, that kid needs a nap, right? The mm -hmm. more hyper they get, that kid needs to sleep. We know that. But you're dealing with exhausted parents who can't deal with it, right? So instead, they're like, stick a screen on, give them a an iPad, let yeah. them go and do anything because at least they're quiet. And that child now looking at the screen and the bright colors is getting these surges of dopamine. And actually for the child, we would think it would be stimulating, but it's actually flooding them, calming them, and they become addicted to it. Now you take them to school, you want to get them to learn book smarts with a pen and paper like we used to, and all of a sudden the kid can't function. Oh, you know what? They're ADHD. So let's put them on medication. And what's the medication we give them? It's a stimulant. And why do they need that stimulant? Because they are exhausted and they cannot function. So 85% of kids out there that are diagnosed as ADHD have just terrible sleep. They're not getting enough sleep and the quality of the sleep is not healthy. And yet we're medicating them. And then they age out and they become a teenager. And what we start to see are high-risk behaviors much more likely to try drugs, to smoke, to, you know, be impulsive, to get into trouble. The frontal lobe starts to just really narrow in. And then we start to see juvenile detention halls filling up because nobody knows what to do with these kids. So we start this whole cycle of dysfunction in society that people can't pinpoint. And I'm, you know, there is no aspect of our life. Think of any aspect of our life that does not depend on you having a good night's sleep. You can't. You think yeah. about weight. Okay, people are overweight, lose weight, go to the gym. I don't have the energy. I didn't sleep. I'm exhausted. I don't have the energy to go to the gym. Okay. I didn't sleep last night. My brain is driving me. Do we not understand our brain drives us, right? Gives us direction, instruction. When you didn't get enough sleep, the brain says, I need more energy than what, what I got. So it's going to drive you towards high calorie, high fat foods. And you're going to eat way more calories than you should. And in that moment, you think you're making a choice to pick up that bag of chips and to sit there and just mow down, you know, or popcorn or whatever it is that's your, your snack of choice. But it's your brain that's driving you saying, hey, I didn't finish what I needed to do last night. I need some action to happen. I need you to be chewing, to masticate so that I can clear the brain of all this cortisol and stress and try to regain some energy. The hormones, leptin and ghrelin that make you feel full or create hunger, they totally flip. So you see these folks that are hundreds of pounds and you think, man, I can't believe that. Well, are they making the choice or is the choice being made for them because we haven't addressed the root cause that they can't sleep?
And inevitably, in these folks that are uh, hugely obese, when you look at it, there's some form of trauma in their mm -hmm. life that is unresolved, that the brain's struggling to deal with, but cannot. They don't sleep well. The brain doesn't get to deal with it. So we go full circle back around to who owns sleep. You yeah. have to deal with the trauma, but you have to deal with the physiology. At the end of the day, the only person that owns sleep is you. You are the person that owns your sleep. And if you are not getting enough sleep, if you don't wake up full of energy and joyful about your day, who told you that you had to suffer with that? Who told you that that was okay and that's good enough for you? Speak up. But the problem is even if people speak up, the providers that you're speaking to have had less than three hours of education on sleep in their entire career. Yeah. yeah. It's like nutrition. Yeah. yeah. It's almost become uh, you know, a medal of honor for people. You know, look how successful I am, but you know, and I only sleep two hours a night. You know, it's almost like there has to be a, a shift on the way we perceive that. And also to really, you said at the beginning about not taking this mechanistic view of the, of the body and mind-body health, but realizing that sleep is integral to every aspect of our life. And until we join those dots and make that connection, I think it's very hard for people to really value the importance of sleep. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. And I think where we see that demonstrated is with um, military and law enforcement where they are expected to kind of be above their own physiology. So I, and I've seen it working in the industry where, you know, the person's supposed to go home. They've already worked 16 hours, but there's an incident. You mm -hmm. don't go anywhere until all that paperwork's done until everything is resolved. And so sleep is, it's almost considered like you should be tougher than that. Like you, you know, we would never say to somebody um, that we're working with that has to go to the bathroom and is like, you know, doing the potty dance or something. Yeah. I got to go. I got to go. I got to go. Come on, suck it up. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah, like, I haven't hey. gone in 12 hours. What's wrong with you? Like we wouldn't do that because we know it's physiological, but somehow there are many industries that we do that to people when it comes to sleep. And what we're seeing as a result of that is huge increases in suicidality. It's, uh, you know, we, it's, we keep complaining about these numbers and we say it's so sad, but what are we doing about it to address it? That's I think it's even prevalent in the medical industry, you know, with mm -hmm. young doctors when, when they're starting to do their internship and stuff. And we, you read about the number of hours that they've had to work around the clock without any sleep. And this, again, is supposed to be the mindset as well from the older doctors is that's how I did it. That's how it yes. was done in my day. Therefore you should suck it up and do the same without realizing, you know, what is the effect that that's having on their quality to be a doctor, to recognize, you know, a sign that shows up that, oh, well, this needs to be addressed. They could very well miss that because they're not alert. Can you speak a little bit about the quality of sleep versus the length of sleep? Because a lot of people are, are quite hung up on that, I think, about the length of sleep that one needs to have. And so the length of sleep that you need changes all throughout your ages and stages of development, right? So we know that off the bat. But let's say for the adult, you know, I always ask, what's more important, quality of your sleep or the quantity of your sleep? There's research projects out there right now. Military is looking for a way to get the effect of eight hours sleep crammed into four to six hours. <laughs> it, again, we cannot ignore our physiology, right? So the first four hours of sleep are body repair. The second four hours is brain repair. So you decide, what do you want? Do you want to have the eight hours of full physical and mental restoration? Or are you going to sacrifice some of that mental restoration because you won't necessarily pay the price for it now, but you'll regret it when you start to lose your mind down the road, right? So length of time, you know, and then I, there are people who say, well, um, how much sleep do you need? Well, you need as much as you need. If you wake up and you feel strong and healthy and you, oh, you can get by on six hours and you function great, fine, right? Nobody's going to say you have to stay in bed for two more hours. But I bet many of those people have the desire to have a siesta, to have a little nap at some point during the day. And that's fine too. 
If you look at how people slept before in the 1800s and before, there is some evidence that they almost had like a biphasic sleep, right? They got up really early, cracked dawn, they did their chores, whatever. They had a heavy meal in the afternoon. Then they had a siesta. Yeah, and then they did their eating activities and right mm -hmm. yes so if you're having uh, if it adds up to the total amount of sleep that you need if you are sleep deprived there's some research that shows that you are much more likely to get into REM quicker so it's almost like your body knows it needs to catch up interestingly enough when you start to replace your vitamin d and get your vitamin d levels up to where they should be during that time, you have a profound need. Oh, looks like the feet just got stuck for a moment there. And to sleep, right? Okay, there we go. So it goes back and it does the repairs that it missed out on. So for some people who've had years of bad sleep, you might need a few months to allow your body to catch up. So, you know, <laughs> We're going to stay with the gold standard. There's always going to be outliers outside of the eight hours of sleep, but roughly that's what people need. And there are people that have this um, strange ability to not feel fatigued, like really unique. There's a small subsection of society that doesn't feel fatigued, even losing sleep. Um, there's always going to be outliers, but for the majority of people, that's what we're aiming for. And if you look at, that sleep architecture that we talked about, let's take a child, okay? A, a toddler or an infant. Their rhythm looks entirely different. So their brain is just learning like crazy, absorbing and learning. And so they take in, take in, take in, sleep. Consolidate that. Wake up, ready to learn more. Learn, 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 right? Sleep. But as we get older, that starts to change because as we're older, we're not learning as rapidly, you know, so we have our sleep wake time stretches out. So it is variable through the years. Ultimately, the test of whether you're getting enough sleep is how well do you function during the day, mentally and physically, right? So that's, that's the test of it. And with all the people we see today, you know, my concern is the overuse of antibiotics, destroying the gut biome. We're not able to produce the serotonin and, and all the wonderful neurotransmitters that we need for sleep. And we've given these to children for everything, earaches, throat, you know, sore throats, or everything that ailed them, we gave it to them. And now we have a generation of kids that are, the suicide rates are crazy, totally anxious, depressed. And to go back and to repair that, we need to start looking at our young people and supporting their sleep. And there are some initiatives for that, making school start a little bit later, you know, those kinds of things. But yeah, for the next generation, we need to pay a lot more attention to sleep. There's such a huge biochemistry. I mean, you name the area of medicine, it, it seems to all be interrelated. And I remember when we were talking before we went on air that you were explaining with the stressful lives that we have, why we have cravings and with the cortisol levels, I you were giving kind of an interesting example. So think about people can relate to when you feel overwhelmed with emotion, what can happen? You start mm. to cry, right? Yes. You start to cry, your nose runs, you all and those the chemical, if you were to test those tears, the tears for joy, the tears for anger, frustration, they're all neurochemically different. Okay. Yeah. So when we have an excess in the brain, the brain tries to rid it. So when we have an excess of cortisol and different stress hormones, noradrenaline, all these different stress hormones, ideally we get a good night's sleep. We say, you know what? I can't deal with this right now. I'm going to go sleep on it, right? I'm going to have mm -hmm. it and I'll talk to you in the morning about how I feel about this, right? So we intuitively know that if we go to sleep, our brain will do the majority of the work to cope and deal with those emotions. But if we don't, if we're not able to sleep, we stay up ruminating about it all night. We tend then to want to, during the daytime, eat crunchy things. Maybe we chew on our nails, we chew gum. I see people all the time with the little, the little sunflower seeds, just constant, constant oral fixation of things, right? Because as we chew and as these muscles chew and the jaw is working, 
and the tongue is going up on the roof of the mouth, we are actually helping the brain to eliminate those hormones. So another way that we can do that, which is again, back to who owns sleep, when you're journaling, when you take them from the brain to the hand and you're writing on paper how you feel and you're getting it all out, you have to get it out somehow. Your brain will eliminate it somehow. It's just, it will either be physiological or it will be pathological, right? Okay. So you get these overeaters, emotional eaters. When I'm stressed, I eat everything in sight. Why? Why? How does that even make sense that you would do that? Well, because of this complex here, that is actually what facilitates the motion and movement in the brain of fluids that helps to clear out the neurological waste that have been sitting there. And, and when we talk about digestion, it's not, we're not just talking food. It's even what we watch. How many people do you know? They Netflix binge, right? <laughs> Sit there and veg out just because that is a form of digestion too, that now our brain has to deal with that. The music we listen to, will affect the brain waves, the oscillation of, of how our brain is functioning. So I saw time and again, young people brought into our bubble room, seclusion rooms, out of the room, and they are in there singing heavy metal, death metal. You know, like there's, there, there's an aggression to what they're putting into their mind and the brain can't handle it. It's not natural. It's not in harmony with pure energetic flow through our brain. So the brain has to deal with that. And when it gets too many things to deal with, you have a breakdown. It's a yeah, the, the overload. Um, yeah. I have a question kind of coming from a different area just because of one of my passions. And I'm just wondering if you have played with that or studied it. Uh, because as you're talking about the placement of the tongue and the roof of the mouth and the working of these muscles, that's been my training as a vocalist. Okay, so does singing and, you know, positioning and, you know, when we're working with sound, we use the roof and we actually move the sound and we have to actually shape mm -hmm. uh, the whole structure in a way for the sound to come out. So I've just kind of went, that's really interesting that whether people have looked it's at that. It's funny how you intuitively know that right and mm -hmm. and singing is a huge benefit to people it it helps to stimulate the vagus nerve which helps to regulate your blood your blood pressure your heart rate right you're when you're singing you're controlling your breath you're controlling your exhale you are controlling mm -hmm. that which automatically puts you into that rest and digest autonomic uh, parasympathetic state yeah. of calm mm -hmm. And the vibration itself actually helps to exchange carbon dioxide and oxygen in your blood cells, increases nitric oxide to dilate your vessels. There are huge metabolic benefits to singing in addition to toning the muscles of your tongue and your throat. Now, why don't we sing as much as we used to? Mm -hmm. It used to be in school, you would sing You'd get together with people. I remember as a teenager, we'd have a fire. We'd all sit around the fire and sing. And then a few years ago, they started doing computer synthesized auto-tune type of techniques. Mm -hmm. So now they created this perfected model of singing that nobody can really achieve. Mm -hmm. They created this uh, image in children's minds that you, you looked a certain way. You sounded a certain way and anything outside of that, they feel self-conscious about, right? We have to encourage children to use their voice with varying pitch. That's basically what it is. Mm -hmm. You take your voice, you vary the pitch up and down, and that's, that is called singing. But in addition to that, it actually, music and singing completely so elevates your mood. Yeah. You know, it has so many benefits emotionally that it's really sad to me that the schools have kind of taken it out as if it was inconsequential. You know, it needs to be brought back with your parents, with your children in the car, turn off the radio, you know, sing a song with your kids, the, all those stupid little songs that the kids love. You can see the joy that it brings them. And if there's one thing that we all need a lot more of is joy in our life. 
hundred percent. What a simple way to do that is just to sing your head off and not care how you sound. So you're spot on. And, and you know, the thing to ruin, they found that when people actually are in the depths of Alzheimer's, yes. they still remember their music. They still remember their song. Mm -hmm. And Parkinson's patients with their little shuffling gait, you put on mm -hmm. the music that they know, and all of a sudden they can walk and dance. Yep. So there's yep. a lot we still haven't learned about music. There is sound therapy where a child who's autistic, profoundly autistic, cannot make eye contact. 20 minutes a day, a frequency, you know, a vibration played, all of a sudden now they're functioning at grade level with their colleagues. Like there's a lot that we still need to understand about the role that our senses and our cranial nerves play in, in overall health. Well, I think that as we're wrapping up here, Julian, I don't want to wrap up at all, but I think that when the world comes around to it, we need to do a long retreat. And mm -hmm. um, I think that retreat should be called sound asleep or something like, you know, um, good night in the key of sleep right? Oh, wow. And the charm of this retreat will be that you're not going there to do. You're not going there to get more 16,000 more techniques or whatever it is people think they're paying for. Mm -hmm. You're actually going there to sing, dance and sleep. And you'll pay hugely for that privilege. You can uh, reset your entire sleep in five days. Oh, I love it. Okay. So now we know that uh, we're gonna we'll party the first day. We'll reset it in five, <laughs> and then we'll have gratitude this. So one week. Uh, I mean, uh, I just think that honestly, I, I would be very excited about going to a seminar or retreat where I was given permission to sleep, and not only permission, but I was supported in that through. Mm -hmm. You know, we're gonna sing, and yes, I grew up around campfires and learning to play three chord guitars and. That's what we did. And friends would come over and we would sing and do music. And I just don't, don't see it anymore. So this has been really, really true. We, we, we entitled this episode uh, kind of tongue in cheek, rest in peace, because <laughs> Steve and I were talking about it. And I said, well, why should people be resting in peace one day? I want to rest in peace now, like today. Okay. Okay. Universe, don't take that literally, but you know, I want to rest in peace now. And why not? Like, like, cause you know, every time we close our eyes, it's a mini death, isn't it? In a sense, cause we're yeah. like dying to the world. Yeah. Right. And dying to the past and being reborn to the new. That's right. And so in a yeah. sense, when they say it's a new day and it's a fresh start, I can, I, I know that when I've given myself the, the sleep that I so want and and hopefully that I so deserve. So how to take back your sleep was our subtitle. And I really feel that you have just, this is going to be one of those episodes that I don't know about you, but I'm going to be listening to it a few times because it, there's so much that's stimulated. Yeah, Steve. I just want to say something because I, I think you just, you said something so profound there, Julia, because I think a lot of times why people don't do something about the problem, their health issue, whatever it is, and especially sleep, especially if they've struggled with it for years, mm -hmm. that we, there's this misconception out there that if I've struggled with it for years, then it's going to take a long, long time to reset my sleep. And you mm -hmm. just said that you can reset your sleep in five days. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, that, that in itself is a phenomenal selling wellness retreat within mm -hmm. the hospitality you know world where i've been working for years with wellness programs and stuff for people to have that realization that they could reset the sleep in five days mm -hmm. wow uh, i think that's so so powerful take away and i think if you are somebody who is highly driven not to take away from that at all i'm a highly yeah. driven person i know you know and i i have sacrificed sleep at times in the pursuit of my goals. So not saying it in any way to disparage that, that drive. What I'm saying is then give yourself the opportunity to reset. Mm -hmm. Don't be like a mouse on a treadmill that mm -hmm. never gets off because that will kill you. But if yeah. you're doing that, recognize your body. And to me, that's what a vacation should be. Some people say they need a vacation from their vacation. That's okay, right. Well, what was the point of that then, right? Yeah. Reset, rebalance so that you can get back to living the full life you want to live. So that that's that's where I see that people too 
um, think there's no hope for them. So there's another, uh, I believe, interpretation of what we call the Great Reset. Right. Okay. <laughs> that when we take time out, one of my definitions in my meditation courses is meditation is taking time out to take time. And if we can start to master that in conjunction with whatever our hopes and dreams and aspirations are for ourselves, for our families, our relations, our business, our purpose, I think that's a path to mastery. That So let's give sleep a chance. And uh, I so, so, so appreciate this uh, discussion. I think we're going to get a lot of wonderful feedbacks and probably way more questions than anything we've answered today. It's one of those topics. Yeah. And uh, we're going to encourage people to reach out to you so they can start to really improve their quality of their lives because it is available and it doesn't have to be like Steve says, you don't have to be so fearful or feel that it's so insurmountable. Mm -hmm. um, so we can have that healing uh, be given to us by, I think, one of the most beautiful gifts that we've been given mm -hmm. uh, by the creator is the gift of sleep. And uh, on that note, I think it's nap time. So uh, sorry, guys, but um, I have more important things to do. And, uh, 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 but thank you so, so much. And please come back and talk to us more. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you for having me, you guys. Om Shanti. Oh, and pleasure. have a good sleep tonight, everyone. Good night. <laughs>